0: You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, the text is printed for you in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a couple on the back table we'd like to give you. Uh, however you have it in front of you, though, it's good to have it in front of you. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, that's in the Old Testament. About halfway through your Bibles is Psalms. Keep going to the right. You'll pass Proverbs. Then you got Ecclesiastes. Okay? Uh, someone prayed for it. I, I had forgotten to mention it, but we are rejoicing this morning with, with Tim and Sarah on the birth of uh, their baby, Walter. I went up there, went to Martha Jefferson yesterday to go see them. They're doing great. He's beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're going to be home hopefully on Monday and you'll be seeing something on the city about you know more meals uh, <laughs> one of the w- wonderful ways that we bless uh, one another here in this church is by taking some of the load off of folks by um, helping to provide meals when they have babies um, you know for the first few weeks um, so if you can if you can participate in that and be a part of that that would be that would bless him and Sarah um, as well as it has others so all right. We have spent the last nine weeks hearing the same thing over and over. I know that's a little boring, but that's what this book is. Uh, we've, We've heard the same thing, that everything is meaningless. It's like the constant refrain of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you're, if you're new with us here this morning, I, I, and if not, and you just need a reminder, let me, let me remind us that when, when we hear meaningless or, or vanity, which is what the, the ESV translate the word as, um, that, that is the closest thing in English that we can get to the original languages, uh, which was Hebrew, the original language, what, what it was trying to communicate. But for us, when we hear meaningless or vanity, what we think is uh, pointless, pointless, useless. But that's not what the author's trying to communicate. What he's trying to communicate is something that is insubstantial. The entire point of the book is that we are trying, we, we constantly try and look to different things, be it money or pleasure or knowledge and wisdom or, or work or what have you, to try and place our hopes in them. And they make promises to us that they can carry them. But in the end, what the teacher is telling us is that those promises are insubstantial. They can't deliver. And this morning, we come to the notion of justice, the idea that right will win out, that that right will triumph over wrong. And in the end, our teacher is telling us that as we look around in our world, that we will find that ultimately even that is meaningless. If you have your place in Ecclesiastes 3, as is our habit, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. Be reading uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. What happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They they all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over beasts, for all is meaningless. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we have, we've come into this gym and we've brought the church with us. And so we are asking, Lord, that here during this time you'd throw your weight around in this place. You'd let yourself be known. We have come because we are desperately in need of not only worshiping you, but of having our, our eyes refocused, our hearts reshaped, our minds realigned with what reality is. And so, Lord, we ask that during this time you would preach your gospel to us. Let Jesus and his cross come forward. Uh, Let the one who speaks fall to the back, so that you might receive all the glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. In my home, it is something of a given that good guys always win, right? I have two boys. That is kind of the narrative that goes through our home. Uh, It may be, and in fact, I think it is the reality that the idea that the good guys always win is kind of what creates a good story right also the tension of the fact that 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 victory is there are always times in a good story when that victory looks like it won't happen but in the end it always does that is the stuff of good stories and that is the stuff of boyhood play but you and i know different don't we because we watch the news Uh, we we see people exploited We see people get off on technicalities. Maybe we ourselves get off on technicalities, right? Then, of course, we have our own interpersonal interactions, right? The little injustices we both experience and perpetrate. Have you ever wondered why it is that our stories are so filled with this notion that right will always triumph over wrong when everything in our experience says that that is not the case? This is the question that our teacher wrestles with this morning here in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Can the notion of justice carry our hopes? Can it carry them? So that's what we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to look at that in three ways. As always, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you, okay? We're going to look at searching for justice, we're going to look at losing hope, and then finally, we're going to look at searching and finding, okay? Let's get started, shall we? Look down at verse 16 real quick. He says this, the teacher begins, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, we need to define some terms so that we're all on the same page before we actually get started. Look, I don't really care at this point whether you are a Christian here in this place or not. Some of us aren't. But all of us, every one of us, have some notion of justice and some notion of wickedness, don't we? All of us do. And to some extent, like, that's kind of our national narrative. I mean, our, our national political uh, arguments are all based over one definition of these words or another. Uh, so before we actually get into this, before we make declarations on whether or not justice is meaningless, we need to define what the teacher of Ecclesiastes means when he says those things. Okay, let's start with Justice in the place of justice, okay? What, what does he mean by justice? Now, in, in the original language, in the Old Testament, when this word is used, it's primarily used of a place or, or, or better, uh, uh, the, it's primarily talking about the settling of a dispute, the giving of a judgment, okay? This is about the answering of a question. Now, always assumed when you talk about justice is the fact that that question will be answered correctly, but the point is that it's, it's about answering a question, we're talking about a judgment that is given, an actual point being made. Now, that's similar, but, but not identical with the other word that's used there, righteousness. Now, righteousness is a churchy word, right? Most of us think we understand what that means. Uh, what righteousness means, again, in the Old Testament, it means um, the right kind of behavior in accord with a, a standard adopted by the community. Okay? Now... There are ways that you can be righteous according to a certain way of doing things, like faithful according to this communal standard, um, that doesn't necessarily bear the weight of all the churchiness we bring with it, uh, but it also might, okay, depending on the context. Righteousness is about whether or not you are acting rightly towards others or God, whereas justice is about the declaration of whether or not you have acted rightly. Does that make sense? Righteousness is what you are when you're doing it rightly. Justice is the declaration that is given when someone recognizes it. Okay? Now that leaves us with wickedness. Now, when I say wickedness, most of us probably think like the wicked witch of the West, you know, curled toes, striped socks, all that stuff. Uh, But we end up thinking when we think wickedness of some untold evil. That's because here in this place, we We don't use that kind of language, right? Because that's so judgmental. Okay? Uh, Well, the Bible doesn't have a problem using it. But when the Bible uses this word, it means this it means negative behavior, thoughts, words, and deeds that are contrary to God's character and hostile to its surrounding community. You get that? Let me give it to you again. It means negative behavior. Thoughts, words, and deeds contrary to God's character and hostile to the community. Another way of saying that, according to the scripture, is selfishness. Now, let me do a quick aside before I get into the, like, all the questions that are right now jumping through your head. When, when I was in seminary, I had a professor, some of you heard the story, but his name was Bruce Waltke. He's an Old Testament scholar, uh, fairly well-known, wrote this big book Hebrew grammar that no one likes. Uh, it's very very useful, but not good reading. And, and anyway, he, he taught a, a, a class on, on the book of Proverbs, on wisdom literature, in fact, because he spent his life studying this, and he started the first class. And, and he's this very austere uh, elderly gentleman. And um, he decided to tell us what the difference was between wickedness and righteousness, especially because in Proverbs, like, that's all over the place. And so he said... When you check out a book from the library that others will need to write their papers and you keep it at your house. Wickedness. And he never really looked at anyone. He's kind of staring off in space. When you come in late to class, disrupting everyone's train of thought and that of the professor... Because you had to get a drink from the water fountain. Wickedness. You know, and all of us are like, Oh gosh, I can't be late to class anymore. You know, he's calling us out. But the point that he was trying to make is this. In the Bible, righteousness is about living for others. Wickedness is about living for yourself. Righteousness is about, uh, about seeking the flourishing of others. Wickedness is about seeking only your own good. Okay? And now, some of us are like, whoa, hold on, Rick, selfishness. I mean, I know selfishness isn't right, but but wickedness? Yeah, I know, okay? But stick with me for a minute, because honestly, it's going to become clear. Because when we talk about justice, when we talk about righteousness, what we are talking about is a right world. We are talking about a world that looks right to us. But what does that look like? If righteousness is behavior according to a certain standard, what's that standard? Well, According to the Bible, that's defined not by some some, uh, abstract code. It's defined by a story, okay? Because in the beginning, God created everything, and he created it good and right. And humanity was created to be in relationship with God, in a dependent relationship with God, and to further his purposes in the world. And relationship with God, like all other relationships, whether spoken or unspoken, is based on promises. It's based on promises. You know this. When we stand up for a wedding, we, we... make promises to one another. When we have friendships, we assume certain promises. You're not going to talk about me behind my back. You know, you're, you're not going to steal from me. Like, we have certain things that we assume, we just never state them. But they're always based on promises. And, and that's the same with God. We promise things and He does. And the Bible calls this a covenant. Okay? A covenant. It's just fancy language for a, a relationship that's formed by promises. And humanity was in a covenant in the beginning that that theologically we call the covenant of works, all right? If that's helpful, you great. Write it down. If not, don't worry about it. But on the surface, this is what it means. We promised in that covenant not to eat from one tree. One tree. Of all the other trees in the garden, just not not this one. Now, why that was a big deal, because someone was like, what's God's problem? Like, why so arbitrary, this tree and not some other? Well, why that was a big deal was that in keeping that promise we were staying in a dependent relationship with Him. Because the Scripture teaches us that, that in some way, that if we, if we were to eat of that tree, then then we would take on ourselves the desire to define reality for ourselves. But up until that point, we would be dependent on Him. He would define reality for us. And so we stayed dependent on Him, and He flourished us. Like, that's, that's the way it worked. We were designed for this. We were designed to live in relationship... in a dependent relationship with God... and for the sake of others. We were other-focused. But things didn't stay that way, right? I mean, you know this. You live in this world too. Like, things didn't stay that way. The Bible is clear. We broke our promises. We broke our covenant with God. We didn't want dependence on Him. Because we began to believe that we... could be independent of God. And in fact, not only could we... but that we must be. And so we turned from Him and betrayed Him. And when we did... We went from being righteous to being wicked in at least two ways. Okay? Stay with me. On the one hand, we went from being covenant keepers to covenant breakers. And when you break a covenant, when you break a relationship with another person, when you betray that person, you know as well as I do that there comes with it a sense of guilt. You can't betray another person and it just doesn't matter unless you didn't really have a relationship with them in the first place, in which case it's not a betrayal, is it? Betrayal bears with it guilt. And so in that sense, we were wicked according to the Bible. All of us. All of us. But also... Because we sought our independence, we became turned in on ourselves, focused on ourselves, seeking things for ourselves instead of others. And so we became wicked based on that definition as well. In other words, not only are we guilty of wickedness, we are now in some sense wicked. Now, what that means is that our lives are fundamentally defined by a question. That question is this, what's in it for me? How do I take care of number one? Now, why is this wicked? Because that is the opposite of what we were made for. The exact opposite of what we were made for. And the opposite of the God in whose image we were made. It is contrary to God's character, and because it focused on us, it is hostile to the community. You see the definition? That which is contrary to God's character and hostile to the community. When we are focused on ourselves, we're not focused on the community. We become hostile to them. They become, they be, our community becomes, um, they just become commodities for us to use for our own good. And it's contrary to God's character because that's not who he is. It is the very definition of wickedness. You with me? All right. Wickedness, then, is both a judgment and a position. Most importantly... It's a position. It speaks to both who we are and what we do. And so in the biblical sense, though, people do wickedness because we are wicked. You following me? We, we do wrong because we are, in some sense, wrong. We all act out of the fundamental position of our hearts, which is now turned in on itself instead of focused on others. To, to put, like, more churchy words to it, if you didn't have enough already, we sin because we are sinners, we don't become sinners because we sin. Do you, you following? Like this is a very fundamental distinction. We need to understand that's how the scripture teaches. And so our teacher is looking around for justice. He's looking around for righteousness. And in the very places he expects to find them, in those places he finds wickedness instead. Now, when we, say, when we hear him say places, we need to understand he means places. Like the place in which justice and righteousness is supposed to be found. Instead, he finds wickedness. We'll we'll get back to that in a second. Um, But let's keep going. Okay, look down at verse 17. Because he says basically this. Well, if I can't find justice here, maybe God will judge. Now, this should be surprising to us, right? Right? Not because it's in the Bible. If it was, I mean, just because it's in the Bible, it shouldn't be surprising to us. It should be surprising to us if we've been paying attention to Ecclesiastes this whole time. Because if you've, been, if you've been here, you know that our teacher has barely spoken of God. Because he is looking fundamentally at the world under the sun. It's the phrase he puts out there. Under the sun. In other words, according to what I can see. The world in which I can see. In other words, he's trying to find something apart from God to hold up his hopes. But here, though, he can't find justice now. So what does he do? He says, well, well, well God will judge, right? Now, why would he say this? Listen, he's not the only one, right? He's not the only one who does this. Some of us in here only believe in God when the wheels fall off in the world. And suddenly we have to have something to fall back on and go, well, they'll get theirs. Really? Really? Did your reading of the news tell you that? Your experience of life tells you that the wicked won't prosper? That selfishness doesn't actually work? Is that what your experience of life tells you? Because that's not what mine tells me. That's not what his tells him. But there is there, there is an assumption in our heads that justice must happen. Now, why is that? Because there is something deeply ingrained in us, almost like in our DNA, that knows that we were made. For justice and not wickedness. That we were not made for that. And if you don't believe this, I would invite you to head down to Bessie Weller Elementary School uh, throughout the day, about the time when the kids are out on the playground. Because you will consistently hear one phrase over and over again. That's not fair. That's not fair. Who taught them that? I can tell you this. We don't talk about fairness in my house. I hear it all the time. Like, it is, it, w- that's not fair comes out all the time. Now, we may argue over whether something actually is fair or not, perhaps inform our children's sense of what does constitute fairness, but the desire for it doesn't have to be taught, does it? It's just there. And so our teacher... Throughout this book so far, he has raged against God, but he still holds out hope that justice, the justice that is elusive here, will be found at some point by God. And that hope for him lasts for about six words. Okay? Let's keep reading because he begins to lose hope. Look down at verses 18 to 20. You see, here's the problem. As he's looking at things, he comes up with a realization death happens. Death happens, and it happens to everybody. Now, he's talked about this before. Some of you will remember when we talked about um, the responsible and the irresponsible, the wise and the foolish. Um, he talked about it then. He's like, look, what's the point? You're wise, you die. You're foolish, you die. Maybe one dies before the other, but the point is, like, you're all going to die. And he's coming back to this. Now it applies to justice. Basically, he's saying that death is the end. If we don't see justice now, it ain't coming. Now, what he is saying when he talks about beasts and all that stuff, what he is not saying is that animals and people are the same, right? Animals are people too. That is not what he's saying. I know it's very popular today. Um, some of you all treat your dogs better than you treat your kids. But that, that's, that's not what he's trying to talk about here. What he's trying to talk about, he, like the Bible lays out a qualitative difference between animal life and humanity. It's called the image of God. It's something fundamentally different, okay? But that's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that we are all alike in the sense that, we all die. Every creature dies. He's losing hope. And so he begins seeing conflict in his own thoughts. That's why he says, um, I said in my heart. What that means is he's talking to himself. Okay, He's talking to himself. He's having an internal conflict. On the one hand, he's angry at the injustice he sees, and so he thinks to himself, same thing we think, they're going to get theirs. And on the other hand, he remembers, I don't really believe any of that anyway, and, and so he he's like, Dude, if it doesn't happen here, it's not going to happen. So I guess it's not going to happen. And this is fleshed out in, in verses 21 to 22, so follow me here. Because all of this stems from this phrase, who knows whether. What he's saying is this. How do we know? How do we know? We watch the news, something bad happens, we're like, some dude gets off, right? He gets off. He, he killed a bunch of people. He, he doesn't go to jail. we're like, God will get him. And the, and the teacher says, how do you know? How do you know? Does your, again, does your experience of the world tell you that? No. Why would we think that, he says? And it's a great question. It's a great question, especially because we're a culture that's obsessed with relativism, Right? Which, of course, you know, let's be honest. Relativism is great until we're offended. Right? It's a great principle until we're the ones that are wronged. (laughs) Uh, I I mean, you can believe that everyone makes up their own truth and that right or wrong are relative until someone throws water in your face or steals your car or abuses your daughter. At that moment, watch my language, You, you don't care much about that person's notion of truth and right and wrong, do you? No. Relativism, friends, is the product of comfortable classrooms, not the real world. But here's the thing. We all have an ethic. We all have a morality, every one of us. We all have something we hold to that we can't really prove, and then we get offended when someone violates it. I don't care if that ethic is about how people should treat their sexuality or their finances or the earth. Like, we all have it. We only believe in relativism in, as regards to whether or not people can tell us that we're wrong. Not whether or not we can tell other people. We tell, we tell other people they're wrong all the time. Some of you are doing it right now. You're like, that dude is wrong. I know, right? Like, that, this is what we do. But the thing is, is that even with our relativism, we think that right will win in the end. Even if it's just our definition of right. If we're being consistent, we will have the same reaction as the teacher here and begin questioning why we are so certain that right will win in the end. And for that matter, (laughs) who's right? Now there's one more thing we need to check out. Uh, because so far this has sounded very familiar, has has it not? I mean, every one of us in this room, uh, if you haven't yet, you will, if you're you're a kid and it's just not part of your reality yet, but everyone in this room at some point looks out at the world, sees injustice, and starts to rage against it. Like, this isn't the way things should be. The question is not do we ever look out, the question is do we ever look in? Follow me. Remember when he said, in the place of justice, there was wickedness? The place of justice is the place where just decisions are made. In other words, the place you go to get justice. In our our world, you go to a courtroom, right? Lord willing, you go to a courtroom, and hopefully, you will receive justice in that courtroom. In the ancient world, they didn't have courts. You went to the throne room of the king. That is this guy. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by the king. And he looks around, not at out there, but at everything, including his own actions, and he says, in the very place where there should be justice, where I am supposed to be making right decisions, wickedness. He doesn't just look out at the world and say, the world's messed up. He looks at himself and he says, even me. I'm messed up. I'm not just... Because you see, if we're really being honest, you and I don't even keep our own standards. I mean, you and I want justice, but do we? Do we want justice? For God to settle accounts? For actually what goes around to actually come around? Like, my dad was big on that phrase. Like, is that, is that really what we want? I doubt it. You see, friends, justice is meaningless, not just because it can't hold up, it doesn't seem to, to work out always in the end, but it is meaningless because we both want it and we don't. We both hunger for it and rage against it. We seem to want it, but know that we're not, or know that, that, that we actually don't, and so we end up reaching the exact same conclusion. Justice, like everything else in this book, is meaningless. Now, I want to say two things this morning by way of application, if I can. So, um, it, if you've checked out, okay, check back in. Uh, here's what we're going to do, okay? First, I want to talk about a well placed hope. What do we do with our desire for justice and our inability to find it and our fear of it actually coming? Because you see, the way that the, the Bible explains the problem is not just that there is injustice. Not just that we do unjust things. The way the Bible explains the problem is that you and I are fundamentally unjust. <laughs> okay, let me return to the story if I can. There we are, guilty before God of covenant breaking. We, we, have, we have broken covenant with him. We have betrayed him. We want life apart from him. But right there, right as, right as the, the full weight of that is about to hit, he makes another promise to us. He promises to make things right. And we broke the co- one covenant, what we call the covenant of works, and he makes another one, the one that we call the covenant of grace. And, and in this, he mysteriously says that he is going to make things right, but also that we will. That God is going to fix things, but the humanity is going to fix it. It's really, it's really odd. And that, that promise begins to work itself out through the rest of the Bible. God chooses a dude named Abraham. Listen, Abraham was a messed up cat. Like he, he, he God did not look for like, the best possible guy to, to choose. He chose this dude named Abraham, who, who was so full of integrity that uh, when he went down to Egypt with his wife, the king of Egypt looked at his wife and said, she looks good, and he said... Her? That's my sister. You can have her. Why? Cuz he's scared Pharaoh's going to kill him. There's a just guy, right? Let me take the polish off it for you. Dude just hoard out his wife to save his own skin. Justice. He's a good dude, right? No. No, these are the kind of folks consistently in the Scriptures God seems to choose, and God chooses them. He says that through your family I'm going to work out this promise. But the problem that keeps coming up, though, just like we see in the life of Abraham, is that though God tells His people over and over this is what it looks like to be just, they can't do it. Why? Because they're not just. They can't practice justice because they're not just. They're still wicked. They can't do justice because they haven't been made just. But then, in the fullness of time, as the Apostle tells us, Jesus comes on the scene, okay? And the mystery of God's promise becomes clear. You see, God had to fix the problem because everyone else is unjust. Uh, He's the only just one. But at the same time, humanity had to fix it because humanity broke it. And so in Jesus, God took on humanity to fix our problem. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he lived the just life that we couldn't. He actually kept covenant with God. And then he died the death of a covenant breaker. In other words, he bore judgment due for our guilt. And then he rose again. Now, that's normally the tagline, like, and then he rose again, and we move on. But that's that's really important. So listen close. In the Bible, in the very beginning, the consequence of our betrayal of God is death. That's the whole point. It is death. That is the consequence. And so Jesus died for those of us who betrayed God, but he never betrayed God. And so death couldn't hold him. Jesus rose as evidence that our betrayal had been dealt with. And so you see, when we repent of our seeking a life apart from God, we place our faith instead of ourselves, in our ability to do justly, in our ability to do good things, instead we place it in Christ, in Jesus. We return to the dependence we were made for. And and the scriptures say that we are united to him, which means that his life of justice becomes ours. And his death for the sake of our injustice becomes ours. His life, his Good, perfect record becomes our good, perfect record. And our sin is paid for in his death. Do you see how amazing that is? Not just for us. The cross itself becomes the place where justice is both proved meaningless and actually found. It, on the cross, the only innocent man who ever lived, the only purely innocent man who ever lived was put to death by us. The ultimate injustice. The ultimate injustice. And at the same time, it is there that God actually poured out His justice so that those of us who trust in Christ might not experience it when that event that we know intuitively is coming, when God will set the world to rights, actually comes. You see... God will set the world to rights. The New Testament consistently says that Jesus' resurrection is in fact a foretaste of that. Christ's resurrection becomes both the proof that justice has been done and the assurance that it is coming. God will actually set the world to rights, but to be part of that world set to rights, we, we, we you and I, have to be set to rights. And the only way to be made right, to be justified, to use the theological language, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what what then about the here and now? Because let's be honest. Christianity, especially the evangelical variety of which this church is a part Uh, we have a bit of a reputation, don't we? That We've been accused of being so heavenly-minded that we're not of any earthly good. uh, Of using our future hope as a way to turn a blind eye towards the injustice of the world. That is a criticism that is very fair. Okay? Don't, Don't get all, like, defensive about it. That is very fair. But here's the thing. The New Testament won't let us do that. Because the hope of the Christian is firmly located in two places at one time. Bizarre. Okay? Firmly located in two places at one time. On the one hand, it's located at the return of Jesus. And with time, he he will finally and fully set the world to rights. Right? You with me? Okay. But at the same time as that, it's located at the resurrection of Christ. Because it is there that the scriptures tell us a down payment of the new world is actually made. That God actually put down a down payment. He put his deposit in. This is coming, right? And a deposit, a down payment, is not like um, you go to buy a car, you don't pay your monthly bill in money and your down payment in pencils, right? Like it's, you pay them, it's all the same thing. The new world is coming, Jesus' resurrection, same thing, okay? The, The down payment is the same. The resurrection of Jesus is our deposit of both our ultimate vindication and God's righteousness, his faithfulness to his covenant, And so the New Testament says that that world that's there because of what happened there at the resurrection is beginning to break into the world now. Now, what that means is this. We can actually work for justice. We can actually work for righteousness. We can work against behavior that is contrary to God's character and harmful to the community. But we cannot place our hopes in it. We cannot place our hopes in it because systems, listen to me, systems, no matter how well thought out, no matter how well created, cannot create justice or righteousness because they cannot make people just or righteous. They can't. Only the Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus, can do that. What we do, though, is we work to see others flourish. Both to have an opportunity to flourish and assistance to flourish when it's needed. But in the end, the only thing that can create actual justice is not a court, a law system, it's not economic freedom or economic redistribution. It is the outworking of a transformed heart made just because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, let me conclude. I think the reason that our best stories always include the near triumph of evil only to give way to the greater triumph of the good is because we are reflecting and resonating with another story, whether or not we even know it, a greater story, the story of the world that God made, the world that then turned from him, but which he sought to redeem. And in so doing, evil did its worst to him. We did our worst To him. And yet he bore it all. And rose again to reconcile us. To make us right with him. Friends, that is the story that Christianity proclaims. And that is the story that the gospel invites us all to take our place in. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come now, some of us in this room are just flat out defensive. Because we're still hung up on the fact that that your word says that we are wicked. By nature. By nature. And we don't think we're that bad. We're all right. You're, you're doing, you know, you're pretty lucky to have us in this room this morning. That's, a lot of us are there, Lord. Others of us are, are, are um, still wondering if it's possible that that could actually be true. That you could actually... Make us just. More that You could view us as that in Christ instead of just through our own good behavior. It seems too good to be true. I pray, Lord, for the grace to believe it. Because that is what Your Word says. I pray that You would work in us. Work in us faith. Work in us repentance for for the ways in which we have sought life apart from You and faith to find it in Christ. We can't make that up. You've got to give it. And so, Lord, we ask You for it. Whether we're having faith for the first time or whether it's for the millionth time. But Lord, we ask that you would make this church, make Holy Cross Church a place of justice. Because in it you are working through those whom you have declared and in Christ have made just. And Lord Jesus, we do look ahead to the day that you will come, you will return. And you will bring with you a world set to rights, a world without tears or pain or sin or evil. We long for it. We long for it with every bit of our being. And so we declare with the saints, with the scriptures, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. In your name we pray.